Thank you guys for being here. Always appreciate your willingness to come and worship together. And um, there's a few shout outs that we need to give today. Um, kind of first and foremost, we want to give a shout out to our Crosswalk Clinton campus. They have not been meeting for a few months due to some COVID restrictions, but also because they lost their venue and they have found a new venue and started today. One of the biggest groups they've ever had, 12 kids. They haven't had a kids program before, so that's going to help the growth of their church. So we're really excited for them starting and they will continue in the space that they've rented from another church um, and that's really a blessing for them because they also don't have to set up and tear down. We also have Crosswalk LA um, which we are officially changing the name from Crosswalk Foothills to Crosswalk LA which I think is a better name because nobody knows where the foothills are. You didn't know, let's face it. Um, so we're excited. They're meeting today in downtown LA in the Arts District. They found a great venue. Their hope is to launch weekly starting in April. So we're going to continue to pray for that and excited for them. That has been a three-year process of planting a church, friends. That's a long time. So we are excited. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's just, it's incredible, and I'm so grateful for their faithfulness through some difficult times. So that's really exciting. Also, our Crosswalk Chattanooga um, campus is not meeting today. Um, what's funny is when I, when I texted Clinton and say, hey, how's it going? They're like, it's amazing, and the weather here is horrible, but they still came, which is great. And then I texted Chattanooga. I'm like, how are you guys doing? They're like, oh, no, we canceled church. It's snowing, um, which in the Northeast, that's not going to stop you. But apparently in Chattanooga, it does. So they canceled church this week because there's a lot of snow happening. There's quite a storm coming through, which, uh, which I'm really concerned about because my son and I are going out there in a couple weeks, and I rented a convertible. Mustang. Um, so I said, you guys better sort that out before we get there because I'm putting the top down. I don't care how cold it is for sure. Um, no, anyway. And um, thank you. Just thanks for being here. Um, so appreciate this community. I don't know how many of you know this, but I'm, a, I'm an English major. I have a degree in English. Um, yeah, I, I love books, right? I'm a bit of a bibliophile. And um, what I love about books is two things, the very first line and the very last line, right? When you read a book and that first line is engaging and you're ready to go, it's amazing. Famous first lines make a big difference. It can make or break a book. You may not keep going if the first line isn't great. So I've got a few first lines for you that I want you to see if you know. If you know it, shout it out. If you don't, just be really quiet and embarrassed that you don't. It's okay. Um, but the first one, and this was pretty famous, call me Ishmael. Anybody know? Moby Dick. Somebody's in high school. Um, right? Melville um, wrote in 1851. How about this one? Uh, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Any ideas? Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina, 1877. How about this one? Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Anybody? David Copperfield. David Copperfield. This one I put in because I had to slog through this particular book. Um, I don't expect anybody to know it, but it is quite a classic. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. Nobody? James Joyce, Ulysses. That was like walking through wet cement, just so you know. It was difficult. How about this one? All this happened, more or less. Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. 
I love this first line. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Yep, C.S. Lewis, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Absolutely. Here's one that has become oddly relevant once again. It was a pleasure to burn. Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. A cautionary tale about what censorship does, and perhaps we should read that book again in today's world. Um, how about this one? You better not tell nobody but God. You better not never tell nobody but God. The Color Purple written in 1982 by Alex Walker. This one you probably have heard, but you may not know where you heard it from. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Charles Dickens again, A Tale of Two Cities. Or how about this one? in the beginning. This is how the scriptures begin. And the author was creating an origin story for us, right? To know God, to know his love, and to understand why things happen. It's a good first line, but it doesn't stop there. It begins like this, in the beginning, God and you see, the onus was put directly on God so that we could understand who this story is really about, as opposed to thinking it was our story alone. Good books tell the story of a protagonist, and Scripture is no different. Now, we're not studying the book of Genesis, although this sounds very much like the beginning of the book that we are studying, which is the book of John. As you know, John is not a synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those were written differently. John was written much later, so it's not included in those synoptics. But it is a gospel on its own, and it begins like this. And you've heard this before. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Or you've heard it as, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This begins the journey through the book of John, written by this beloved disciple that he liked to call himself beloved, so we thought we'd call the series that as well. But this is also a story of divinity, of heresy, of friendship, and above all, it's a story of reconciliation. And I gotta tell you, people love the book of John. I think it's my favorite gospel. This is a Bible of the father of Jim Gearing, one of our, our um, kind of pilot groups happening in Sonora, California, his father, Leroy Gearing. This is his Bible. As you can see, he loved the book of John and he studied it many, many times over his lifetime. Can you imagine even reading this at this point? So many notes. I get the feeling that Leroy didn't just read the book of John. He seemed to read all the books of his Bible this much. But do our Bibles look like this? He studied this book again and again. Now, there's a few things we need to know about John. First of all, John was writing later, so his perspective was different. In fact, he's doing something different than the other Gospels. He's fighting heresy. He's fighting docetism, which is telling us that um, Jesus is not really God. He was just some person who was adopted by God, but he wasn't really divine. And he's fighting Gnosticism that's happening at the turn of the first century, where there are people who are saying there is secret knowledge, that if you know the secret knowledge, then perhaps then you will be be saved. John is older 
than the other gospel writers. He is wiser because he's gone through some stuff. I don't know if you remember that he was exiled to Patmos for a while. And he has probably changed in his understanding of faith a little bit in Jesus. As you get older, you begin to realize, I believe the same things, but I believe them so differently now that I'm older. They're almost not even the same things anymore because my life experience has changed. My wisdom, hopefully, has been gained. And I have continued to understand what faith what place faith holds in my life. It's gotten me through a lot and I think about things differently. But what did not change was John's focus on Jesus. I mean, we all grow in our understanding of faith, hopefully, what it is, how we live it, how we feel about it and what we focus on. However, John was not about to change his focus because he knew in whom he believed. He knew who to put his faith in. So we'll ask a simple question this morning. Who is your faith in? Even what is your faith in? Because everyone has faith in things, faith in something. So what do you have your faith in? Some people have faith in the church, but have a tendency to forget God. Some people have faith in doctrine, but aren't so serious about the relationship that they have with that living and risen God. Maybe we have faith in our culture. Maybe we have faith in our ideology. Maybe we have faith in our politics. But the question is, do you have faith in the risen God? Does your faith extend to a divine Savior? I was talking to um, someone this week about Sabbath in particular. And he said, what does the gathering do on Sabbath? What's the benefit of the gathering on this idea of Sabbath? And I said, you know, it seems to me that on Sabbath, we get to put all that, all the other stuff we believe in down. So all those other ideologies, all those other politics, all those other cultures, everything, we can put them down and we can come and in commonality and in, in, as one people, we can say, declare and live experience that we all believe in Jesus. That's what Sabbath gives us, the opportunity to place all those other labels down and live as one in Christ. Sabbath gives us that opportunity. The congregation coming together gives that opportunity. But it's important to know who your faith is in. You see, John knew in whom he believed. It was that word that was there in the beginning, that word being Jesus. There was no question. He places the son amidst the father in creation and he understands exactly what he is doing. We know all three entities were there because we see it in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But we also see it in Genesis where it says the spirit was hovering over the water. So we know at creation, all three aspects of the Trinity were absolutely present. So what we learn is that God is a God of plurality, three in one, expressed a little bit later in Scripture. But there's something beautiful because there's this Greek word, pros, or pros, right? We can see that John was saying they were co-equal throughout eternity and they were moving towards one another. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, moving towards God and the Word was God. Just so you know, when I began to take Greek in college, which was like a seven o'clock class, maybe it was 645, which is just punishment, not only for the students, but also for the teacher. I don't know what that teacher did. He's now president of Walla Walla University. And, but apparently that year he was in trouble because he had to teach a 645 Greek class. 
And we started by translating this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learned about the idea that God is a God of plurality, but not just plurality. God is a God of proximity, pros, toward God, so close to be as one, together, community. You know how I can tell when you people are in love? It's the proximity in which you sit next to people. It's true. Like there's a certain number of chairs in this room, but when, it's, when there's lots of love in the room, we need fewer chairs because you're all sitting on top of each other. You know what I'm saying, right? If you don't like each other, there's a little bit of space, right? A little bit of space for the air conditioning. Right? In fact, I can tell when people love each other because their feet are pointed towards one another. Even if I'm talking to them, they're not pointing towards me. They're pointing towards each other because that's what love does. It brings us together. It brings us towards one another. So we have a God who is not only a God of plurality and community, but a God who is a God of proximity moving towards one another. And, and we... We have a theological word for this. It's perichoresis or perichoresis, depending on how you want to say it. But it means mutual abiding, living together, being so close to be as one. The perfect example of this is people who look like they're animals, right? People who look like they're pets. Have you ever seen somebody walking down the street and you think, hmm, they really like their dog. They have the same haircut. You know, uh, Proximity is an interesting thing. This is why elevators are so uncomfortable. Elevators force us to be in proximity with people we have no relationship with. And it is uncomfortable. And you know when that extra person gets in, you have just enough space. And then that one person comes and stops the elevator. And everyone in the elevator is like, no. If you want to have a really fun experience in proximity, in uncomfortable proximity, when you walk in the elevator, don't turn around. And then look them right deeply in the eyes. Proximity matters. We believe in a God, not only a God of of plurality, but a God of proximity. He existed in the beginning with, toward God. Right? He was... He was the prototype for Adam, as we see in the book of Romans. But he was a a better Adam because he was the original Adams. I get it's a bad play on words and I apologize, but this was the atomic template that was used to create you and I. That's where our DNA comes from. That's why he is a God of proximity, so close to be inside of you and your architecture. But he wasn't comfortable just being a God of plurality or a God of proximity. And he decided he would also be a God of productivity, excuse me. And we'll see this in the next verse. God was not satisfied with simply leaving things as they were. He wanted to produce. And so John 1, 3 says, God created everything through this word and nothing was created except through him. This is how deeply involved he was in creation. By the way, he wasn't bucking for credit like we do sometimes at work. It just wouldn't have happened without him. 
He's this God of plurality, three in one, a God of proximity coming closer to one another and closer to us. He's a God of productivity that actually created us, but he did that because he is a God of passion, not just production, but passionately loving and living. So it says the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. This is living, shedding and sharing light. We also see the shift from life to light as a metaphor to keep our eyes on. That's the switch that we see from life to light. It's important. So keep our eyes on it as we read scripture. And then this beautiful text which says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. This is so true. And we live in a dark world, right? And, and it feels like I say this every time I start talking about darkness in the world, but the world seems a little more darker over the last few weeks. And so we all look for that light. And, and this week, the light for me was finding that YouTube video of that little girl in Ukraine singing Let It Go in the bunker. You all saw that, didn't you? Where she stands up and she's singing Let It Go. That's light in the darkness. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. This is why we proclaim Jesus all the time. Because we live in a dark world and the only light that is unextinguishable is the light of Jesus. And so that's why we continue to talk about this. This first five verses, these first five verses in the book of John give us the story in its totality. All right? It talks about our origin and then it talks about our trajectory because it says the darkness can never extinguish it. That is the whole of the creation and salvation history in five little verses. But he doesn't stop there because he's got more work to do. So then he says, God sent a man, John the Baptist. Now, John's an interesting guy. So when I speak of John, I'll talk about John the Baptist and John the author, or John the revelator who wrote the book so that, we're not <clears throat> so that we're not getting confused. But every time we see John... The Baptist, in John the author's gospel, what we see is John the Baptist ever receding, yet ever leading in the midst of that receding. And I'll explain that as we go through this book more. But it says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. So he's preparing the way, making sure they knew that a light was coming, but also making sure to know that he was not the light. And it says it in the very next sentence. But what, what John, the author, wanted people to know is that there was an accelerant to that light. And it was John. But he says it very clearly. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. That's clarity. And we see it again later. And so he wraps that up by saying, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Why do we need to introduce someone to God? We talked about this a lot, right? We talked about witness in our last series. Why do we need to introduce someone to God? Because they simply won't know unless we prepare the way. Not that God can't break through on his own, but God is gracious enough to partner with us so that our witness may be the accelerant to the gospel that someone needs. That is witness. But then it says this, and he, this has got to be a lament for John, the author. He came into the world into the very world he created. But the world didn't recognize him. I was, I was, um, I used to write a lot of music and um, mostly bad, but every once in a while there was a gym in there. Um, 
And I wrote this one praise song, and I kind of liked it, and we sang it a little bit. And a few months later, we were up in, um, we were up in Michigan somewhere. There's like 150 high school kids, and they start singing a song, and it's the song I wrote. Yeah, that was a big moment for me. So I'm in the back and I'm singing. It's amazing. It's super awesome. Everything's great. And then they get to the, they get to the bridge and they start singing something that I did not write, which is shocking to me. So I'm uh, being an idiot like I am. I um, stop them. That's not how that song goes. That's not how it goes. It goes differently than that. They're all looking at me. They started up again. No, that's how it goes. So I get up, because, you know, I'm this musician, I think. And I start leading the song, and everybody's singing. And we get, to the, we get to the bridge, and I start singing it the way it's supposed to be sung. And they all stare at me like I'm an idiot. That's how it goes. No, it's not. I'm arguing with 150 17-year-olds, by the way. <laughs> I'm definitely an idiot. That's not how it goes. Yes, it is. No, it's not. That's not how it goes. How do you know? I wrote it. No, you didn't. <laughs> then I didn't know what to do. Because what are you going to do? Convince 150 people that you wrote the song six months ago sitting in, you know, in your kitchen? Like, I don't know what to do. So anyway, I let them sing it the way they were. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. There's deep disappointment in that phrase. He came to his own people. And even they rejected him. You know, we read this text and we, we feel bad. We feel bad that the people that God created rejected him. But we have been guilty of rejecting people over and over in our lives. People that we love, people that we know. Young people that are struggling with their identity. And when they land on an identity, and I'm not saying when they choose it, when they land on an identity that might not be the same as yours, families who've read this text and know how deeply disappointed Jesus was that the people he created rejected him, we reject people because they're not the same as us. We've rejected people. That story, that lament that John writes about Jesus being deeply disappointed that he was rejected by his own people, how many of our kids get to say the same thing? How many people in our communities get to say the same things, that they were rejected by people who were supposed to love them first and foremost? I think we need... I think we need to learn to love more graciously. I think our love needs to be bigger and broader than we allow it to be. And I get it. I get it. You know, well, you can't allow this or that. Jesus allows you. Are your sins worse? Or are your sins better? Jesus was disappointed because the people he created didn't accept him. How do our children feel when we don't accept them? Let's learn how to love more graciously than that. John doesn't leave us in that despair, though. He says this, but, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So he opened the door, and I think we should do this more. I think we should open the door to love for everyone who comes in. 
And for everyone who is seeking to know who God is, I think we need to learn how to show that love. And yep, you know what? It's difficult sometimes. And it feels like sometimes you're agreeing to things that you might not want, might not want to be agreeing to. But I think that that's what we're called to love. I think we're called to love in bigger, greater, grander, and deeper ways than we have. And then John includes something that we haven't seen before, a language that we haven't necessarily heard before, that we will see again in chapter 3. It says they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This theme comes back powerfully, but John is doing something here. He's setting up something completely new. And I got to tell you, we as people don't like the new, and I wonder why we don't accept newness in our life. Well, we come from faith tradition, right? And so tradition is something that means that we just continue to do kind of what we've done before because that honors the dead. But innovation is what honors the living. I do talk to a lot of young pastors and they come in and they say, I got to change my church. And I'm like, great, do it. That's awesome. Because I think most churches need change. We need change all the time. And, And they're like, yeah. And so they try and then all of a sudden it stopped, right? And church boards, and so the the lament is, you know, these people will never change. They just believe in tradition. The problem is we often don't tell people what the change will be. Young pastors are great at this. We need to change, but they never tell us what we're changing into. And now I'm getting a little older, and so when a young person goes, we need change, I'm like, to what? Because I'm all about change, but explain to me what? Well, I don't know, but it needs to be different. Nope, that's not good enough. you got to explain to me what it is we're going to change into. Because I think everybody likes change. I have not in my ministry noticed that just because someone is old, they don't want something new or something phenomenal. What they don't want is to be stuck in a thing that they never accepted. So what you got to do is you got to tell people what you're changing into. Thank goodness John does this. On the other hand, we also like to be comfortable, right? I mean, we like... Our car may not run, but because we've had this car for so long and we know how to make it work, we'll keep it. Like old is comfortable. Even if you got to like kick three tires and, you know, bounce on the hood three times to make it start, we get kind of comfortable with that. And people say, you should get a new car. And you're like, why? (laughs) Because your car is unsafe. I know, but it's comfortable. We get comfortable with sick and broken. What I love is that John is essentially saying there's something new coming. There's this new birth that's coming a birth that wasn't something that came from natural consequences, but a birth that comes from God. And then he says, well, this is what happens when you understand the new birth. You see, what happens is the word becomes human and makes home, his home among us. So John's not just talking about change. He's talking about what change is going to look like. That God's going to come and he's going to make a home among us. He's going to live with us. He's going to abide with us. He's going to have that perichoretic relationship with us. He's going to create community with us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John gives us a recount of who he is and he gives us a trajectory of how things are going to be. He clarifies and wants you to know what this is all about. And then he goes back to John the Baptist and he says, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds. This is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am for he existed before me. It almost feels like a riddle, but what it really is, is a declaration of the divinity of Jesus. And the question is, are we ready to declare the divinity of Jesus as well? You can't read John's gospel and decide Jesus was a a good man or was a, a righteous teacher. 
When you read the Gospel of John, the thing you have to ascend to above all else is that Jesus is God. It's in the first sentence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was and is God. And if it doesn't begin there, your trajectory is all wrong. You'll never experience the love of God in the way that it was meant to be because you are shutting him out of the divine love that he has for you. You will never get where he wants you to go, which is to be born again, completely renewed, a completely renewed creation, something that hasn't been seen before if you don't start with Jesus being God. And John's testimony all throughout the book is always about Jesus. So the question becomes, what are you going to testify to? How do you explain light and life to others? How do you explain the divinity of Christ and live the divinity of Christ in your life? How do you experience life and light, especially in the darkness of the world? And sometimes we feel like, you know what? We just don't have enough light. We don't have enough life because the world is so dark and it feels overwhelming. And there are tsunamis of darkness that seem to be coming over us again and again and again. Let me tell you how you begin to see the light. You go back to scripture. You study it deeply. You hold on to it when it's the only anchor point you have because all the rest of life is falling apart. You hold on to it because your words can't make sense of it anymore. And your thought process isn't going to fix it. And it feels hopeless and it feels lost. We go back to scripture and we write in the margins again and again. Because there is new hope and there is new understanding that happens every single time we open that book. Every single time we re-engage the Holy Spirit in a study of Scripture. Every time we do that, we are blown away by the depths of hope, by the depths of life and the depths of light that keep coming. It is a wellspring that never ends. But the thing is, If our study doesn't change us, are we even paying attention to all those words? There should be growth. There should be new life. And if you're not experiencing that, you have to go back to the well. And you have to get serious about it in a way that you haven't been serious before. If our testimony is going to honor the integrity that we find of God in Scripture, then we have to be knowledgeable about it and we have to lean into it. We don't get to pick and choose. We have to begin to study big portions of Scripture and lean into the character of God that we see revealed in those portions. We have to stay away from using Scripture like a weapon. And begin to use scripture like what it is, a revelation of God to the world. And that revelation of God that we see through scripture becomes the revelation that we experience and we give in our lives. This is how we become an accelerant for Jesus in the world. So we're going to study John. We're not going to study every word. We don't have enough time. But this study will bring us to Easter and to that resurrection that we all hope for and long for and pray for, brother. That's why we study, to be reminded of how deep the Father's love for us is and how powerful the resurrection of Jesus is. Let's bow our heads.
God of grace, God of mercy, renew us, for we believe in you. You were there at the beginning. You'll be there at the end. You've been faithful through every moment since. We need a rebirth, a renewal. And Lord, as you're a God of not only plurality but proximity, move towards us. Produce in us good fruit. And may the passion you have for us be the passion that we have for others as well. We pray this in your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.